Welcome back, Oscar fans. This is Jake. You're listening to the OCC. On September 8th, the Academy announced representation and inclusion standards designed to encourage equitable representation on and off screen, try to better reflect the diversity of the movie-going audience. This obviously was the final output of a task force that we talked about earlier in the summer that was in response to really years of criticism that the Academy Award nominations reflected the sentiments of a voting body that was overwhelmingly older, white, and male. Today, I want to spend a little bit of time diving into these rules, what they mean, and and what the impact might be on Hollywood moving forward. And here to help me do that, very happy to have author Jay Mace III. His book is White Folks Be Tripping, an Ethnography Through Poetry and Prose. Jay Mace, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Jake. I'm excited to be here. So are you a big fan of the Oscars in general? You know, I kind of oscillate back and forth because, you know, in addition to being someone who's a writer and a poet and all those different things and an educator, I am also a performer. I love being on the stage. uh, And so I have a love-hate relationship with those kinds of awards that I think that there's other ways to credential ourselves, you know, but reality is (laughs) as far as the big, the big folks on the block, right? The Oscars will always be the precedent, you know, at least for right now. No question about it. And so these these inclusion standards won't take place for this year's Oscars, although it is an interesting set of films this year that are rising to the top. It does feel like it's reflecting a, a more diverse set of of filmmakers, but I think that we'll get into kind of what the last few years have looked like. Right. For the 94th Oscars, though, in 2022 and the, the 95th in 2023, there will be a confidential form that will have to be submitted for Best Picture Consideration that kind of lists how each film does against the various guidelines. But then 2024 for the 96th Oscars is when these rules will go into effect and and they'll impact whether or not a film is eligible. I kind of want to start looking at the history here. Why do you think these rules are, are happening now? I think these rules are happening now because we're sort of at this very pivotal moment in society, right? So here we are in the year 2020, where not only are we having this global pandemic, but we're also having a major uh, uprising, especially the black uprising that's happening right now in response to police brutality. We're having a lot more conversations in spaces where even the most corporate of spaces are having to wrestle with how they deal with black, brown, and indigenous people. And we've had some of the biggest protests in the history of the world, really, just this summer, right? And so I think it's it's because there have been activists and organizers on the ground that have been doing so much work that it's hard to ignore, even in those more uh, closed off ivory tower spaces, you know, these conversations about racial equity and justice. I think everybody's seen kind of an escalation of, of kind of the consciousness around this. And, and obviously, there's been a little bit of a build here, too, as far as you know, the hashtag Oscars so white that really took off, I think, in 2015. Um, There was a kind of a two year stretch where all 20 acting nominations went to white actors. Have you followed the discourse around the the Oscars so white hashtag over over the past few years? And if so, have you seen it kind of evolve or or, or change at all? I mean, what I think is change is people are trying to create more space for accountability and say, let's stop actually negotiating <laughs> and say, like, this is actually something you just you just have to do, right? We can't just beg people to be um, to be thoughtful, to be inclusive, to be all these different things that it comes to a head where it's part of your responsibility to do so, right? Um, and so I think that's where I think the conversation has shifted. 
when and even when I think again, even connecting to larger movements like that year 2015 was the year after the the BLM Black Lives Matter movement started getting really off the ground, right? And so it kind of emboldened a lot of people to have more language around things. Not that there was hasn't always been language in this country around racial injustice, but at least the level of using social media and the public accountability that happens as a result, you know, was really picking up a lot of steam. And so I think we're at this place where people are just tired of the dialogue and more about well, what is the actual solution, right? And whether or not these qualifications or this um, these rules are going to actually lead to the, the full accountability that people are looking for, you know, this is an attempt at a solution, which will hopefully yield some, some results that will greatly impact some folks who are uh, part of filmmaking. Obviously, there, there was, as expected, I think, uh, a very noisy reaction online when these rules came out, kind of <laughs> both in favor and, and against. And we'll, we'll get into that, I think, as, as sort of the bulk of of the conversation in terms of the merits of, of some of those arguments in terms of what the Academy is looking to accomplish this, this plays into kind of who will be nominated for an Oscar, right? Like right. there, there's a very direct line that, that you could say, okay, their goal is to have more representation in terms of what is nominated for an Oscar, right? That's probably right. at the middle ground. One side of it is like the goal is to just get a PR win and, and have some of the criticism go away, right? That's like kind of the one extreme. And then I think the other extreme would say, well, the goal is actually to kind of leverage the power they have to kind of create more opportunities within the industry, whether or not that filters down to what's actually awarded. How effective do you think any set of guidelines would be sort of to each of those possible end aims? I mean, I think that that's, uh, that's hard to answer, right? Because even when we think about movements like affirmative action or things like that, right, that largely benefited white women and still benefits white women <laughs> largely, mm-hmm. you know? So when I think about who this will impact or how this will, will this mean more black, brown, indigenous folks get access? Will this mean more like disabled folks get access? Will this mean more like trans and queer folks get access? That's really up for grabs right now. But I do believe, you know, regardless of what the motives are, because I think the motives that you're talking about, there's always a mix of those, right? There's people that I do believe really feel very strongly like, yeah, we're going to, you know, we're going to make this space for folks. And there's people who are like, this is, you know, we're just trying to make people like us. Like, we know it's not cool to be, to be biggest right now. So we're going to do this thing to, you know, make people, you know, lay off us a little bit, right? Um, There's always that mixing of those things, you know, uh, but I do think that these rules will change some people's access, most definitely, most definitely, because what we're seeing percentage-wise yeah. about who's in front of it behind the camera is so different than what's being presented in these um, in the rules. You know, it's a really interesting point that you make that I want to kind of dig on a little more because this was obviously – I'd say this was largely like a black-led – movement as far as Oscar so white, as far as a lot of the racial justice protests that you've seen this summer. And yet, I think to the point that you're kind of making these inclusion rules, you can fulfill them through a multiple different uh, forms of diversity, you know, including gender diversity, racial diversity, but also um, sexual orientation. Do you feel like there's a need for kind of separate guidelines for each of the groups or, or how would you see that kind of being addressed to your point of kind of, for example, white women being the, the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action? I mean, I think what's hard about that, I think that depends on the filming project. So I think that would be 
kind of hard as I'm as I'm grasping at it or trying to try to imagine all of that. But I do think that, you know, when we support the most targeted of us, you know, everybody else kind of gets what they need, right? So if we were to imagine if there was, you know, when I think about people that are most left out of this kind of work, right? And in lots of different types of workspaces, we're talking about folks who are black folks and not just black folks, but dark skinned black folks, fat folks, fat black folks, fat dark skinned disabled black folks. I think of folks who grew up working class, uh, folks who, um, you know, grew up or who are undocumented, folks who are uh, people, you know, come from who are, who are trans and especially trans women and trans femmes, uh, you know, all these different things. And so, I don't know for every single project that they're that it's possible to have the right rules that make sense for XYZ, because what if I'm telling a story that's specifically on a black community in Minneapolis in like 1973 and, you know, XYZ, right? Um, but what I do hope is it moves us further closer to being able to tell stories accurately. I see a lot of stories and what I think is missing from the critique of these rules is that there are a lot of stories being told through film right now very inaccurately. Right. And then oftentimes we're presented with a predominantly white cast in front of and behind the camera um, that is mostly straight presenting in front of and behind the camera, whether or not they're heterosexual or queer or anything like that behind or in front of the camera. Right. But that they at least pass as such when the light, when the camera goes on. Right. Uh, and we're presented this splits place in times and we're told, oh, well, this is just an imagination story. So it doesn't have to be real. It doesn't have to be this, right? And then when we get period pieces, we're like, oh, well, you know, well, this is because this is about Europe at this time and it would be inaccurate to have X, Y, Z people, right? That's what I'm hoping with these rules. <laughs> and people people start creating and accepting stories that are waiting to be told that have been, that have been pulled <laughs> and have been put into directions. I was listening to actually a story from someone. I can't remember... I cannot for the life of me tell you which um, news station was talking about this or who was talking about this, but they were talking about the uh, movie Harry Tubman. I don't know if you saw that movie. Yeah, that with Cynthia Erivo this past year. Yeah, well, so when that story was first pitched as a movie, they were trying to cast Harry Tubman as a white woman. No. So years and years, so this is, obviously, so this didn't happen in the, uh, I think this was about maybe in the 90s that they were saying they pitched this or early, early 2000s, but they were trying to pitch Harriet Tubman. So this is the level. So literally, uh, an enslaved African woman who liberates other black folks, they were trying to, within Hollywood, did not think it would sell by telling the authentic story of Harriet Tubman being a black woman who liberated other black people. Right. So that's the level of deception that we're often talking about with the ways that stories are told in media. And so, yeah, I think that it's going to take years to really know what the outcome is of a situation like this, but I have to hope it's better than what's going on right now. Yeah, it's not great. Um, (laughs) So let me give a quick overview of sort of what these rules are for for people who may not be familiar. So the Academy is in essence sort of grouped opportunity within film into four buckets and the requirements in order to be eligible for best picture are that you, within two of these groups, meet a certain set of criteria. So the most obvious one, Mesa, you just referred to kind of who's in front of the camera. That's what they're calling standard A. And within standard A, kind of in front of the camera, you have to have either somebody, an actor from uh, an underrepresented racial or ethnic group in a significant role, a story that's centered on women, LGBTQ people, 
um, a racial or ethnic group or the disabled, or at least 30% of the cast must be actors from at least two of those four underrepresented categories. Mm-hmm. Standard B is behind the camera. So jobs like director, cinematographer, composer, and again, looking looking for somebody from, from one of those minority groups or at least six other crew members from one of those groups or 30% of the film's crew. So what, what strikes me about that is like, that's also to me such a low bar too. Cause, so the idea that people are freaking out about that, it's like, they're basically talking about the U.S. population, right? So, so when we're talking about the U.S. population, like women are literally 50% of the U.S. population, period. That is so easy to fill, right? If you think about actually being honest about who's out there, who's doing work, who's who's vying for a job, like there are tons of women trying to do that work, right? Uh, when you think about black, brown, and indigenous folks and folks of color in all that kind of sense, like you're talking about like over, like you're talking about 40% of the US population. If we're looking at and being honest about the demographics of where we live, right? And especially in the cities that are most common to be making the types of films that we're seeing, these kinds of demographics are so easy, so easy to fill. And so we have to ask ourselves not, why do I have to get up to this low bar, but why has the bar been struggling so much since before now? You know, like that's what I, I find so fascinating about the critiques about these. Yeah, well, and I think that one of the things that people have pointed out is that the next two standards, uh, what they call standards C and D, are for any films put out by major studios, pretty easy to meet and put films in a universal position where they could theoretically not even try to meet standards A and B and still be eligible. And so standards C and D, C is basically saying that the distributor or the financing company must have at least two interns from an underrepresented group. And standard D is saying that some of the senior marketing publicity and distribution executives must be from an underrepresented group. So you could, in theory, if you're Netflix, and I think Netflix is fairly diverse as a company, but you know, let's just say that, that they needed to hire two interns next year and they hired them from, from one of these eligible groups. And then they had a, a senior vice president somewhere who was from one of those groups. They could, in theory, just make white films by white directors for the next 20 years and, and they'd all be eligible. So right. I, it's, it's certainly not a high bar. But to your point, you know, the, I, I think the hope is that, you know, just having these rules in, in of itself will make people want to kind of do a little bit more than, than the bare minimum. Right. Yeah, and I hope that some people, because I, I guess that's also the, the idea is that I think folks, when we talk about film and how people even get jobs, right? So that most of us, when we think about how people in the U.S. largely get work, right? So it could be that you put an application for someplace. And for a lot of people, when you're talking about the most high paid places, a lot of people knew somebody, right? They had to be connected somewhere. You don't just start making $500,000 just, you know, um, I don't know what the uh, cursing rules are on this show, but like you don't just start making that out your ass, right? You usually have to be connected to people who are already of wealth or who have certain types of situations. And so what, if people follow these rules are doing and actually, you know, don't go for the lowest bar, but actually try to meet it to look like, again, the demographics of where we are, then that would require them to not just look at the good old boys clubs, but actually look at um, people that are more than just their friends, 
right? And so I think that's what's actually scaring people, that they would actually have to make nice with communities that they've been trying to avoid for years. Yeah, and I, I do ultimately think that that will be probably the biggest impact of these rules in the short term will be on the intern programs, on some of the developmental right. programs downstream that may not, you may not see them relative to the Oscars. Although I do think that the Oscars want you to see these rules in action to a degree. And I think that there will be a push for that to be reflected. But I do think that the hope of, of just using kind of the leverage of the Oscar, because as you said, it is ultimately the ultimate tool for historicizing film. It is for better or worse what people look at as sort of an ultimate answer when it comes to to film each year. And so just by kind of holding out these rules and, and saying that you have to meet these standards, I think that that might be the ultimately the biggest impact is that you, you just see kind of more opportunity in film. Can I tell you what the biggest thing I'm nervous about with the rules is that, so for me, going back to even my history as a performer, you know, I'm a black person, I'm a trans person, I'm a queer person in the world. Um, oftentimes people go for folks who look like me or sound like me when they're trying to not pay people a certain type of amount of money. Right. They're like, oh, we'll get some we'll get a couple of black queer folks because they'll be cheaper than these folks over here that we would have paid top dollar. Right. And so what my and that's something that we see again and again and again. I saw, you know, an article just today about a an actor who ended up splitting some of his salary with his uh, female um, uh, co-stars because he realized they weren't getting paid equitably. Right. Yes. Chadwick Boseman. Yeah. Chadwick Boseman, as well as some other actors in the in the field that have done that. You know, because they've noticed that, hey, like that's actually something when I see gender breakdowns, when I see all this stuff, I've seen this actively happening. Right. I've seen it happen with um, Octavia Spencer. Right. I saw one of her um, white co-stars actually took some money out of her pocket, you know, to make sure that she got what she deserved, even though she is a phenomenal actress who's been all over the place. Right. And so what my one fear and anxiety would be is that we know that black folks, trans and queer folks, especially who are who are of color, right, who are black and brown folks, especially disabled folks, get paid lower by default oftentimes because we're told that we don't have the same amount of clout when the clout that's being given really is by the hands of the people that are paying us, right? Yeah, and so I, I could see this also as an excuse to lower people's budgets. That's interesting. Well, and, and you'd hope not. You'd I, hope I, not. I hope not, but let me tell you, okay, I've seen some shady shit in the industry, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Well, I think that's a good transition, honestly, into the rest of the conversation, which is sort of like the points for and against these these rules, because obviously there's been a lot of them made, some of them good, some of them in good faith, some of them in bad faith, some of them just not good points. But I I kind of want to bring some of them to the surface and just discuss them and the the merits of of some of the arguments. Um, And I think as I've seen them, they sort of break into two groups. There's like the general question of just should the academy have rules at all around this? And then there's more specifically, will these rules, this version of what the academy's laid out be effective? And so I I think kind of the most basic argument and I don't think it's a great argument, but I think you saw who was it, Christy Alley mm-hmm. tweeting about this, and, <laughs> and it's, it's sort of what you see in like the National yeah. Review, which yeah. is just like this, you know, all huffy puffy. Like you can't make rules to stifle creativity or or discourage art. 
I mean, you're an artist, I guess. They, what do you think about that? They've already been doing that. So that's, that's the absurdity, right? So because what I'm saying, could you imagine? So again, just everyone to imagine that they wanted to make Harriet Tubman a white woman. So just, just like the absurdity, right? So, or the idea of how many movies have you seen take place in New York City that did not involve any dark-skinned people at all, right? Like, mm-hmm. and so the reality, I saw there's this, actually this, um, this cat, Dylan Marin, who uh, back in Tumblr times made this uh, made all these different YouTube videos and little those uh, videos where he would um, he would splice together every single word spoken by a person of color in mainstream movies. Okay, some of those little videos that Dylan would put together would be thirty seconds long, right? Um, some movies I think I saw Kirstie Alley in one of them. <laughs> you know, uh, some of those films. I think the most some of those when we look at some of the mainstream films that Dylan was looking at, uh, some of them I think the max maybe been in like a minute in which a person of color was speaking. So there's lots of spaces in which we're robbed of language. We're the backups. We're the best friends who always seem to be fighting for everybody else's autonomy except for our own. Even when I think about like looking at someone like who's an, an actress like Holly Berry, right? Who is still the only black actress, I think, at this point to have gotten be- best actress, right, in the Oscars. And that was years ago, to the point that she talked about being disappointed the other day of having gotten it, because she said, when I got this, I thought that that meant that I was opening doors and I realized I was just a token, right? And so the bitterness of getting an award when you have just been propped up in this way, instead of knowing that it meant that you and the people that you cared about were also going to be taken seriously afterwards. And so to Kirstie Alley's piece, it's like, you know, she got to be a whole straight white woman in the industry, right? And so again, this is, as some people tweeted back at her, this is largely going to impact people like her. I know that. I know that. It's going to definitely make sure that uh, that there's more folks who sound and look just like her have access, right? So even she can go off about all she wants and lots of people that can go off about all they want will also still benefit from it. Yeah, and I, I think that is the uh, kind of a question that that people have in this early moment is like, is this tokenism or is it progress? And it's probably too early to tell until we see how it works. Another criticism that I've seen, or it's not a criticism, I'm sorry, another argument that I've seen like about kind of do we need this? If you look at the last couple years of Oscar winners, you had Moonlight, which was obviously from a black filmmaker and that one best picture. Guillermo del Toro, a Mexican filmmaker and The Shape of Water win best picture. This year you had a Korean uh, foreign film that won best picture. And so you have people kind of saying like, well, if this only affects best picture, because it does, these rules mm-hmm. don't affect the below the line categories. Right, right. The question becomes, do you need them? Can we pu- Can we look at the last four years and say... Well, this is proof that we've made enough progress. I think those people, again, also have low bars. They have very low bars, and they don't have to deal with the implications of what it means to be shut out of an industry in which you've been pouring your blood, sweat, and tears into for years, right? So we're talking about even the amount of individual Black folks that have gotten Oscars. What is it, like 14? How long has the Oscars been around, right? (laughs) You know, um, that argument comes from people who literally do not understand what that means for people's financial uh, stability, what that means for people's ability to stay in the act, in the creative fields, right? In a, a field in which, and so people, I think oftentimes what's, uh, re- you know, for people that are not 
actors or actresses or not part of the industry that are making those comments, people have a lot of critique about what art can look like or what it should or what you know the value of people being in the arts field, even though they're consuming art all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're in this time where we're all shut in our homes. We know that Netflix is important. We know that Hulu is important. We know that YouTube is important. We know that podcasts, all these different things in these arts, these places in which people are creating and creating, creating are so vital and important. And what we're saying is take care of the people that are taking care of you. And that includes noticing when there's discrepancies. So, yeah, there have been a few years <laughs> with some people of color and some black and brown people of one. <laughs> that does not mean that the Oscars have been by any means have been devoid of racism or white supremacy. That's an absurd argument. Yeah, so the Annenberg uh, Inclusion Initiative, um, this is a new study uh, that was just put out. They looked at 1,300 movies over 12 years. They found that women in underrepresented ethnicities each still make up only one-third of speaking roles, which is unchanged from 2007. So in other words, societal progress has not really changed anything. If you think that there's been societal progress in the last 13 years, writ large, it hasn't filtered down to the to the film industry. And do you know what I think is even more important about this, um, about these awards? Because the awards, like people are like, oh, this is about artists, it's about this. This is about whether or not the Oscars comes into the 21st century or whether it becomes a relic. And it can become a relic if it continues to not engage its, its uh, discrepancies and its bigotry. Right. And so this is one way to keep the Oscars relevant. And so people that are disputing all these things, they, again, they can do what they want. But I think a so to to see an industry that is so held up by Euro, Euro standards of beauty, by white standards of, uh, of capitalism, by like all these um, old ways of being to try to prevent its growth is to say we want this thing to die because only things that are dead don't evolve and change. Because I was thinking even when you said this piece about those 1,300 films that you're looking at, you know, and I I said this to you before we started recording, but, you know, out of, I think, 1,447 directors who were responsible for the highest grossing films or who were given the the tutelage to have these, uh, the highest grossing films, right, about 82% of them were directed by white men, right, that were chosen, they chose white men to direct those films, knowing what their budgets were going to be, knowing what all this different stuff is going to be. So, again, it's like that does not speak to the country that we live in, what the demographics look like, who is actually on the scene. There's so many different people out here who are telling such brilliant stories. I think about someone like Issa Rae. You know, Issa Rae did not come up just from, like she didn't have, she didn't come through Hollywood in the same way that she had to make her own opportunities. And I think that is uh, for people, I'm assuming people might know her uh, in case people don't, but she had a, a YouTube series called Awkward Black Girl, which she then turned into, um, uh, uh, what's it called? Insecure, which is a show on HBO, uh, which she's turned into her own movie, uh, movie starring roles and things like that. Right. And, you know, she did that bare bones. And so she as a black actress, you know, created this massive opportunity for herself and other black and brown folks in front of and behind the scenes, which has been amazing for so many people. And there's a world in which we can foster more folks like Issa, more folks out there who have wonderful stories to tell that are hugely creative instead of recycling the same, because we end up recycling and making remake and remake and remake and remake of of old dead stories, right? I think Mm -hmm. we deserve better art and we deserve the art that's out there that has been being ignored. Yeah, and I think the hope too is that just having the rules will will make people look look at it and think about it more. Right. than when they're not held to any level of standard. 
so as as we think about these rules as they exist, I guess you can kind of make an opposite argument. So there's obviously pushback that these rules shouldn't exist. But I've also seen people kind of question what the purpose of these rules are if most of the films in the last few years would have been eligible anyway. I think it's 73% of the last like 15 Best Picture winners could have made no changes and they would have been eligible. I think there's a handful of movies where it's sort of ambiguous, movies like Argo, which don't appear that they'd be eligible, but you know they could probably make an argument that there were like Iraqis and and like they might be able to to make that swing. So the point being that, you know, do you think these rules are not strict enough? And refresh my memory on Fargo. Is that is that a war movie? Or t- or Fargo is in North Dakota. Fargo is in North Dakota, but Argo is oh, the best picture winner okay, from like, 2012. Like, okay, yeah. So something like that, which is a war movie, right? So it's like. To get into the ways in which even we talk about Middle Eastern folks and other folks being pitched and pitted or, or even because these rules don't even tell you about whether or not you have to show these folks in humane ways. Right. But that you just have to show these people. And so I think so. Yeah. So I think that the rules definitely should be and could be stricter. But that's again, if the Oscars stay want to stay forever. Right. So if the Oscars want to be irrelevant, you know, they could, you know, play loosey goosey. We'll see what happens with this first round. But, you know, hopefully that they will create higher standards than what they've already provided and then what they are planning on providing in 2024. You know, I've seen some critique from some folks of color and some trans and queer folks who have also been saying that these rules don't really go far enough to really assure things like what I was saying around pay or other sort of things or fairness or how we're being depicted. There can and should be some forward movement with that. And I also believe that if the Oscars fucks it up, the Oscars doesn't have to be around forever. I think that institutions that can't keep up can also fail. And I think that we don't give institutions that are failing targeted communities enough opportunity to fail. So I think on the one hand, you have, you know, the idea of having more requirements around financing, for example, or a logical next step, an evolution of of these rules. There is kind of some concern, I think, more broadly, that a lot of the rules as they're written right now are much more easily achieved by large studios right. and that you know independent films that are on shoestring budgets that this could kind of risk stifling independent cinema i guess what do you what do you think of that you know i know lots of broke people who make water out of stones right so you know honestly and so again i'm coming from a community that oftentimes does not have a huge amount of resources so it's like to even so this will help a lot of people to get the funding that they need to make their films, to be honest, and especially more folks who are black and brown folks, trans and queer folks, disabled folks, will now be able to ask for more funding and for more sources because people will be paying attention to, oh, these are the qualifications that needs to happen for this to be a best picture. Um, and so there's a lot of people who will actually, this will open up a lot of doors for. And I think the last question that I've seen, and this is a little bit of a harder one to discuss, at least for me, because I don't ha- I'm not a legal person, so it's hard for me to to necessarily know. But I, I guess the question about just enforceability, how are you going to ask people about their religion or are quotas even legal under some obscure 1970s law that's been cited a lot? I don't really know how to talk about that part of it because I don't. I'm not a lawyer, so I don't I don't truly know the answer. So what I think is also weird about those things is like, have you ever been in an all-white room in, in America, in the U.S.? Yes. 
right? And so we're on a brown continent, right? So like, let's, let's go back to that. We're on a brown continent. And so folks, they only, people oftentimes only seem upset, again, when it's people who come from targeted communities that are being invited in, right? Not even to make decisions, but just invited in to take a peek at the door, okay? You know, uh, meanwhile, there have been closed spaces for millennia in this country. That's a lot of how this country operates. And so that's, again, people who benefit from those closed doors being upset at the very idea that maybe it's not just their merit alone that's getting them to where they are, right? And people have to wrestle with that and they'll have to sit with that. I don't think these rules are going to make them have to sit with that because these rules are not strong enough to do that. But at some point, people have to wrestle with and think about and be okay in discussing whether or not it's just their merit or some other shit going on that's putting them in positions of power. And it's rarely ever anybody's just merit alone that puts you in a place of power or puts you in front of a camera or puts you in front of whatever decision-making body. I think that that is something that, as somebody who follows the Oscars pretty closely, obviously I have an Oscar podcast. And one thing that you do start to realize is that it's not a meritocracy in any format. I think a casual observer might think that like this is some sort of empirical ranking of the best content every year. But clearly, if that were the case, there wouldn't be a huge lobbying machine and and marketing effort pushing certain films. You wouldn't need it. So you wouldn't need a full page ad in variety if that was the case. You would just you would just make good art. These rules aren't in effect this year. So so you could make any movie that you want and be eligible for Best Picture in 2020 or in 2021. I don't know if it's a coincidence or societal progress or what what's driving it. But as if, if you look at the Best Director category, for example, that's a, that was all men last year. There's a chance that it could be all women this year. And it's just I think it'll be interesting to see sort of how changes writ large in studios in kind of a lot of the corporate entities that are having to react now kind of pair up with these guidelines that are being put out by the Academy and and what these awards look like in in four or five years, if they've changed a lot or if they've not changed as much. And and it's hard to tell at at this point. I, I don't know what I expect to be the case. Has there been more than one woman that's won the Oscar for Best Picture for a, as a director? Catherine Bigelow. And that was 10 years ago. Yeah, that, so that was 11 years ago. Like, yeah. I think, because even, so let's even say this year, like, let's say it's all women and there's nothing, no chance except for a woman to win this year. That still would not eradicate <laughs> the overwhelming right. uh, blockades that prevent women from usually being even considered. Because um, the Oscars have been around for so long, and so that's like people see a couple. Uh, so even just with the last few years of thinking about some of the, the handful of best pictures and things like that, they think, oh, because it's one or it's two, it's three. It's like, come on, the Oscars have been around for like decades, 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 decades. Like we're talking over how many? Which um, which Oscar season are we coming up on? The first Oscars were in 1927. But yeah, so I mean, the idea that we're coming up that far, you know, and that we're still just talking about a handful of people is wild. We're talking about like, like a couple percent, you know, <laughs> if that, not even. Well, listen, it's been, it's been really interesting to, to hear your perspectives on this. Before we wrap up, do you want to talk a little bit about your, your work as an author and, and your books? Yeah. So like I said, so the most recent book is uh, the white folks be tripping and anthography through poetry and prose that just came out this summer. And just, you know, it was a book for me that was unexpected because I wasn't necessarily, um, yeah, just I think all the things that were happening, it's a tool specifically for 
for especially black and brown indigenous folks to process what does it mean to be living in this time and to really process out all the different things that we're experiencing around um, institutions right now and individual uh, instances around white supremacy and all of that. It's also a space where I think lots of white folks can sort of reconcile some of the very common observations and what is common sense to many black and brown indigenous folks navigating the country that we live in. Uh, this book for me and, and all the books that I tend to write are interactive in that there's places for people to do some fill in the blank as well as there's some micro memoir and some reflection pieces and some poem pieces. I have another book on grief called And Then I Got Fired, One Trans Queer's Reflections on Grief, Unemployment and Inappropriate Jokes About Death. So if you like sarcastic shit about grief or unemployment, <laughs> that book is also out there. It's also an interactive text. Um, and my other book, which is the Black Trans Prayer Book, which is a collaboration between myself, my a co-editor friend of mine, and a bunch of other black trans theologians from all over the U.S. and beyond. So as we're talking about the Oscars, I tend to create content that talks about race and transness and queerness and spirituality from a default of black transness as normal, right? And not from a perspective I have to explain myself or my folks to anybody else, but that folks have to come into it and, you know, center themselves into the reality that I and many other people have. Um, which has been a blessing to be able to create this kind of work. Jamie, the third. Thank you very much. Really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you for having me.